You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, we've been talking about North Carolina quite a bit recently, or we will here in the next few episodes, with our plan here coming up soon to talk about the Staircase documentary, and then in the past we were talking about uh, you know some court cases coming out of there. So I got a couple of facts about North Carolina. Krispy Kreme uh, first began in uh, North Carolina, so thank you to North Carolina for yeah. amazing yeah. donuts. I, um, I knew that. The Venus flytrap, native to North Carolina. and uh, Did not know that. Oh, wait, wait. You mean the actor from WKRP or the plant? The, the plant. <laughs> okay. Well, I there thought was, this was a WKRP reference, man. I thought you were talking about Venus flytrap. Yeah. Uh, he's, the, he's the coolest DJ in town, man. A little before my time, but okay. I'm, I'm generally familiar with the show, but uh, a little before my time. Uh, oh my god! Okay, all right. Well, I, apparently, I just showed my age because when I hear Venus flytrap, I think about the DJ Venus flytrap. And the first miniature golf course <laughs> was was built in Fayetteville, North Carolina. So, hmm. uh, some some uh, some things that North Carolina has brought to the world uh, for the betterment of, of, you know, humanity and, and, and everything. So I'll, I'll, I'll add to that then. My first grade school crush in the fourth grade was from Raleigh, North Carolina. I fell in love with her little Southern accent. Um, (laughs) I I could probably go on quite about, about her. Um, but I met, you know, I was in Detroit public schools and she was kind of a transplant from there. Her father moved there to work for the big three motor companies. And her name was, and you ready for this, Eric? Oh, please. Gidget Rue. (laughs) First name Gidget, last name R-U-E. She was French or something. Uh, Ah, yes, yes. Rue Street. So, yeah, I was... You you rued the day you met uh, Gidget, huh? No, I did. I did. (laughs) All right. She was rather advanced for a young fourth grader oh boy and french <laughs> um okay before we get too ridiculous here um we have uh, uh something new for listeners out there we are um are, are making a push to become a force on twitter um so we have an assistant a super fan super fan becca that has agreed to help us old farts enter the world of re- of twitter and uh keep all of our tweets and twits and and all that jazz uh, up online so we can interact with people more so if you are on the twitter and uh, want to uh, interact with us please go on to uh, find us at double loop pod so, you know, the Double Loop Podcast, but just Double Loop Pod. And uh, we're there. Um, uh, Superfan Becca is posting things just about every day uh, that, you know, relate back to what we talk about, uh, forensic science and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and you and I occasionally throw other things up there as well. Uh, so um, definitely, uh, if you follow us or if, you're, if you listen to every episode... 
or even if you just want to hear you know what's going on every day in the world of forensics uh, you know follow us at double loop pod uh, the next thing I want to mention is a, a kind of a new thing for us is that uh, we're we're entering the world of sponsorship. You know, a lot of podcasts get support from different companies that they uh, kind of team up with, and we're teaming up with a company called the California Wine Club. So I uh, kind of figured that that fit well with uh, how we usually operate. Glenn, you know, usually have a a glass or three of wine while uh, we record. Hey, look at that! Listen to that. Maybe. If you enjoy California wine in particular, uh, this is the club for you. Um, this is. This is a California wine I got right now. It's a California Zinfandel from Lodi country. Lodi. Uh, stuck in Lodi again. Mm-hmm. CCR. You can. Very good. Uh, you can uh, uh, you know, go over to cawineclub.com, uh, register, and kind of pick out what program you want. Uh, you can sign up, and they'll send you wine every month. Just shows up in uh, you know on your front porch um, when they ship it to you, and uh, they have a uh, you know a guarantee where you will love it, where they will replace it, and uh, it's not like a thing where you sign up for a whole year. It's just month to month. If you get tired of it, you can quit. As long as you enjoy the wine, you can keep going, and then they pick the wine that they send to you uh, um, every month, so you can. Discover new things and find something new. So the thing here with uh, you know supporting uh, our podcast, when you check out after you pick exactly what you want, whether you're signing up or getting a gift certificate or whatever you're purchasing from them, enter into the promo code field double loop, and then that'll get you a fifteen percent discount, and it'll also send money our way uh, to help us with the different projects we're working on to improve our podcast. So CA Wine Club for the California Wine Club. And uh, if you enjoy it uh, and you sign up for it, you know, send us a letter. Let us know uh, that you do and that you enjoy it and that it's good wine. And um, we will mention it on the podcast here soon. So, In, Indeed. It's, it's like having your own sommelier for the month. Ooh. So... I was lucky enough here a few weeks ago um, to uh, have some time to meet up and talk to Simon Cole. Uh, I'm sure you know, all you late print examiners out there know Simon Cole. And uh, he was actually in town uh, representing a, um, a, a, the defense on a case uh, that was coming up for, uh, for trial. And we were going to have a, a Daubert-type hearing. It was more just a you know, rules of evidence hearing, but, you know, Daubert is kind of uh, a shorthand description of it, even though it wasn't officially a Daubert hearing. That's it, kind you're, of what you're, it was. You're a 702 state? We're a 702 that, state, exactly. Yeah. Right. We should we should maybe do an episode on those different, subtle differences. That that actually be a good one down the road yeah, for, for yeah. folks that are interested. Yeah. So uh, we're all set up for that. And then the defendant kind of decided... He, well, not decided. He had already decided beforehand, but he pushed even further to represent himself and not have the public defenders who had hired Simon Cole to come in to represent him. The judge went through this whole rigmarole about uh, you know, whether or not he could actually do this and whether he understood what he was doing and why he was doing it. And I think there were some kind of issues with sovereign citizenship coming in, if you're familiar with that whole deal. Hmm. Uh, it was kind of sad watching someone kind of 
you know, shoot his own defense in the foot. Um, but uh, the, the, to make a long story short, um, the judge granted him the uh, you know permission to represent himself with uh, the public defenders acting as advisors. And then the first thing he did in representing himself was cancel the challenge to uh, the admissibility of the fingerprint evidence. Um, so Simon had flown all the way in from California and ended up not being needed. So we went and grabbed lunch at uh, a nice little place in Phoenix called the Cornish Pasty, and they serve Cornish pasties, uh, which are... Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> which they're... If you're not familiar with the Cornish Pasty, it's kind of a fancy hot pocket. To... Oh, how dare you? How I, dare you? I, it's a me- it's a meat pie. It's a meat pie. For I, uh, yes, but for those who aren't familiar with it, okay, all right, I get uh, it. I get your point, but it, 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 and that's kind of what it looks like. But it's really good. But uh, anyway, we we sat down, did a little interview, and uh, and that's what we're going to come up here with next for everybody. And then um, so it's just me and Simon talking, and then afterwards. Uh, you know, Glenn, you and I will come back and, and kind of do a, a little wrap-up discussion and uh, and finish out the episode. So without further ado, here is uh, my conversation with Simon Cole. So here I am uh, in, in Phoenix, Arizona, and lo and behold, who should walk into the courtroom? But uh, uh, our, our guest today, uh, Simon Cole, he was, uh, we were all scheduled to do a, a Daubert kind of hearing, and then there was some question about uh, the client representing himself so ended up no Daubert hearing happening so we're just doing this little interview today so welcome Simon thank you thanks for, uh, for coming on to the podcast and definitely glad to have you here um, sorry thanks for, thanks for having me sorry Glenn couldn't join you as well <laughs> but uh, join us as well in person but um, we'll, we'll see if we can get some uh, comments from him on, on you know, everything we talk about at the end of the episode so I'm going to introduce yourself to the uh, the, the the podcast audience and uh, give a little overview on on how you got into dealing with fingerprints. Uh, well, introduce myself. Yep. I'm uh, um, Simon Cole. I'm a professor of criminology, law, and society at the University of California, Irvine. Uh, I'm the author of a book, Suspect Identities, on the history of fingerprint identification and other criminal identification techniques. And that book came out in what, what year did that book come out? Two, 2001. 2000. <laughs> yeah. uh, you've been doing fingerprint stuff longer <laughs> than I have. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that's kind of yeah, your, your first. Um, first thing that people are, are you know, recognize you for, and then you've been doing other writing other papers and presenting at other uh conferences and other uh evidentiary hearings as well but how did how did you come to be in fingerprints in the first place uh i was in a graduate program at cornell university in science and technology studies so it's sort of history of science and sociology of science um and i took a course in science and law uh just because it was there i didn't have any particular interest in it Uh, And we did one week on forensic science, which was primarily about DNA evidence. And uh, this was the 
early 90s. So it was primarily about the D, what, what were called the DNA wars. Right. Uh, and what's particularly nice is that the reading for that week was a kind of seminal article by my now colleague, Bill Thompson, right. and Simon Ford in the Virginia Law Review. Uh, and that was one of the first articles that was kind of an expose of the problems with uh, DNA typing at that time, the problems with contamination, with uh, calculating population frequencies, um, uh, problems with interpretation of the ev biased interpretation of the evidence and kind of laying it all out. And at the end of that article it was like nobody believed um, in DNA anymore. They had really exposed a lot of uh, issues that you didn't there. think about with, with DNA evidence. And I kind of asked this question in class, what, what if it was fingerprints? Would there be the, the room for these kinds of doubts about fingerprint evidence? And th that was kind of the kernel of it. The professor then got a grant to study um, DNA evidence in the courtroom. And the idea is what happens to science when it gets into the courtroom, into the adversarial system of the courtroom, and there are people right. whose job it is to attack science, no matter what it is. And based on that remark of mine, we said, well, let's do a comparative study. Let's look at when fingerprinting was in the place where DNA is now. That is, it's new. Again, this is the early 90s. It's right. new, it's untested. These are the first few cases. What was it like? for fingerprint evidence. So that led me back to those early cases, the People versus Jennings, Jennings in yeah. Illinois, and the Crispy case right. in New York, which isn't published. Uh, and, and that's sort of where it started. And then I kind of learned more about fingerprinting, and I saw that it, for a historian of science, it was wide open. There was no academic history of fingerprint identification. There were some things by practitioners. Right but uh, nothing there, and the, and the history was so interesting, there was so much to tell. And it, it, I mean, that's also right there in the early 90s when the field is, is starting to make that move from most people doing the work being uh, sworn officers to uh, by, probably by the end of the 90s, most, if not heading that way pretty soon, uh, examiners actually doing the comparisons having a science background instead mm -hmm. uh, so that's that's absolutely kind of this really interesting time to get involved in in that history part too yeah and at that time the uh, point counting versus not point counting debate was really robust um, and Ashbaugh was coming along with his ideas so so at that time I thought I thought the controversies that I was going to be writing about were was point counting versus not point counting, not as it turns out the sort of validity <laughs> of fingerprinting in general. Right. When did when did that switch happen? Then when you going from this thinking that you're going to be looking at point counting versus a more holistic view of things uh, to zero error rate and the validity of of fingerprints. How did was that just as you started researching it, you you um, you were surprised by th that some of the validity things hadn't been done or or, um, or weren't at the same level as what DNA was having to go through. Or how did that switch over to that? Yeah. Well, 
at that time, I was thinking of myself as a sociologist of science. Right. And the sociologically interesting questions were, uh, one, it's interesting to study scientific controversy. So the point counting debate was interesting. Um, and I was also interested in the sort of sociological question of how do expert witnesses get people to trust them? Okay. How do they go up uh, and say, uh, this print was made by this person, trust me, and then uh, a bunch of lay people go and you know administer a punishment to someone based on that. Right. And if you look at my first article on the topic, it was a lot about that. It was about, I was sort of trying to sociologically explain that. So I talked a little bit about the, the image, you know, the putting the fingerprint image, um, uh, that that's probably, you know, what does that image do? It looks very complex and intricate. The jury can kind of grasp the complexity of friction ridges right. looking at it. But on the other hand, if you look at the trial transcript, they don't let the jury interpret the image. And right. you can find these moments where, especially in those early cases like Crispy, where the defense attorney says, I don't see a ridge ending here. Okay. And the expert says, I'm the expert. You're not. I say there's a ridge ending there. Um, True. So, so the, the image is kind of transparent and not transparent at the same time. And the evidence is here for you to see, especially because I was thinking about it through DNA, where the image is very opaque, right? People are expecting to see <laughs> your DNA, but of course they don't. They see like an electropharogram. Right. This was even before the piece. Right, right. <laughs> They're seeing a blot. Right. Um, and, and then in the back of my mind, I must say, you know, I, I kind of had this thought of why am I not finding some kind of study where they see how often we get the wrong answer and <laughs> the right answer. Right. But I, I must say, I was, that wasn't like a big issue for me. It wasn't like I should write an article about that. Um, and, and then what happened was a defense attorney called and said, we're thinking of challenging the evidence under Daubert. Are you aware of any studies that show they can do what they claim to be able to do? And I said, no, I don't, I'm not. And he said, would you, would you testify about that? <laughs> and so that's how I, and I said, you should talk to Michael Sachs and right. David Stoney. And he said, I have, but we want, we want you to. Okay. Uh, and that's kind of how I got, I got drawn in. And that was the... Um, that's the Mitchell the case. The Mitchell case, right. Yeah. Um, With which, the five-day Daubert hearing. Yeah, yeah. That was a... I've gone through it and, and back in remember in training, going through and reading a good chunk, if not all, the transcripts from that. And that's, that's absolutely a really interesting case. Plus... You you have these these all these heavy hitters coming together. So you know between yourself and uh, Michael Sachs and David Stoney, and you also had uh, Pat Wertheim was there. Yep. And uh, Dr. Babbler uh, was there, and uh, Steve Meager also was there. Yep. Uh, and uh, Ashbaugh was there. Oh, that's right. And David Ashbaugh coming down yeah, from Canada and, um, too. Ed German. And Ed German. Yep. So all, all these, um, if you're you know in the latent print world. Like everybody there was was you know somebody that's that's been involved or had been involved or still really involved uh, in in this field uh, and has done quite a bit of work for it. So um, 
and to go back in time and, and be a fly on the wall <laughs> for all those discussions, that'd be, uh, that'd be great. But so uh, you, you talked a bit about you know, some of these studies lacking and um, uh, at the time, and um, obviously things have changed quite a bit I yeah. mean, in, in the latent print field. Mm-hmm. Agree? Yes. yes. Yeah. So um, Black Box is obviously one of the, uh, the papers that uh, probably still the biggest paper uh, that goes talking about the accuracy of the decision and and answering some of those questions that we didn't have good answers for back in 2000. Mm-hmm. Any other examples of, of things that you used to talk about a lot that you feel that the, the community has actually made progress on? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I have a whole uh, PowerPoint presentation um, uh, comparing sort of then and now. Okay. Um, and it's written up a little bit in uh, in a uh, article in the West Virginia Law Review. I kind of use uh, um, the Shirley McKee case as the anchoring point, um, but one could use other dates as well. One right. could use Mitchell, but um, and I kind of compare the the world of latent prints at the time of the McKee case and now. Or, or then it was a couple, right. a couple of years ago, and list all the all the things that have have changed, and then I kind of I use that to kind of pose the question of, of is it the McKee case that did it? Uh, uh, you know, for to, to what extent can the McKee case claim? You know, would all these changes have happened without it? And you could put Mayfield. I was going to say I would, I would put Mayfield um, as the thing the, that happened. The the paper was originally written for a uh, edited volume on the McKee case. Oh, okay. That, that never uh, actually happened. With um, they they decided not to do it. But right. so that's why it was framed. But one could easily do in, in the U.S. context. One would do Mayfield. But that but that was the point of the paper. That actually, um, it's kind of worrying that you need these scandals to promote to to provoke change. I, well, if, if I, that's what happens, I so. think that's actually the truth. Um, I, I've said this before, but I think the best thing that ever happened to the latent print community is the is the Mayfield error. While it was you know a, a terrible series of events and um, could have gone much worse, obviously, but was bad enough as it was, the good that's come from it is is overwhelming and has been for the latent print field one of the most positive uh, um, beneficial things you know from that because you get um, extensive policy changes and um, and and then just research money and time especially with the black box without Mayfield there'd be no black box study we would still wouldn't have that uh, that level of an accuracy study uh, available in the field and um, we're all the better for it being here um, yeah, but and what I argue in that article is that that's a scary thought because you don't want to be relying on errors or scandals or misidentifications to tell you when you need to change, <laughs> when you when you need uh, progress, and for for lots of reasons, but right. uh, but not least because there's all sorts of contin as you know there are all sorts of contingencies in the Mayfield case that you know. Had this not happened, we wouldn't have a Mayfield right. case. Um, the most important of which, I think, is the leak, the media leak in Europe that caused them to have to seize Mayfield. Right. And 
if, if that hadn't happened, I'm not sure Mayfield would be Mayfield. Because if there hadn't been the leak that there was an American suspect, then the FBI agents wouldn't have arrested Mayfield. And then uh, if the FBI agents hadn't arrested Mayfield, then when the error was finally revealed and they finally did identify Dowd, then maybe the FBI lab, you know, doesn't let anybody else know besides the Spanish that there's this whole mistake happened. Um, yeah. Um, right. Right. The, yeah. They don't go to the New York Times and say, hey, we made, we just made our, our the first error that we know about right. in our history. Um, and, and possibly they could have done that with good, in, you know, they could have convinced themselves that, hey, this was a weird print, it was a bad digital copy. Um, and um, maybe maybe it's revealed, but on a much smaller scale, where you don't have the Office of the Inspector General getting involved and, and giving recommendations, and more importantly, funding for the research to that then led to you know all the progress that came from that. Right. But yeah. So, yeah. So your initial question was, has a lot changed? Yeah. And so in that article, I go through it. Yeah, lots has changed. Right. The way we, um, the way. Uh, the way testimony is given is beginning to change. The zero error rate is gone. Um, uh, the point counting debate is kind of over. Well, at uh, least in the, on this continent, it's uh, it, it still persists in other places around the world. But uh, um, so um, I'm hearing from Simon Cole to all the listeners out there, latent print examiners, we've been, we've made progress, right? Oh, oh yeah, no, I, I absolutely, I think uh, things have changed in, in the past uh, 15 years or so. And again, you can look at that article and see just the comparison. Um, and and I, I also think it would be fair to say that if you, I don't, I, I won't name disciplines, but if you look at the forensic disciplines right. in the post 2009 National Research Council report error. Um, you know, you would you would have to say that the latent print discipline has been among the more responsive disciplines, as PCAS does say that. I mean, true, they say that quite clearly. So uh, a few years ago, it's been a few years now since I was going to talk about your paper. Um, in how does it go? Individualization is dead. Long live individualization. Yeah. Okay. Not not doesn't roll off the tongue like uh, you know um, like like Star Wars or you know something like that. But I, I you know I understand the reference. Uh, but that's that's been like three four years now since that was published. Yeah. Um, it's uh, I was I was looking back because I remember Glenn and I talking about that paper and um, thinking it was just a couple of years ago. But it was like <laughs> it's like episode like number twenty three or something. So it's way back in uh, in podcast time uh, as well. Um, so in that paper, um, correct me if I'm wrong. Just a brief summary of it, though, is is uh, discusses how in um, latent print field around that time, three, four, five years ago, there's now a push to move away from individualization um, and away from exclusion of all others uh, as you know, the way we testify to a match uh, uh, in latent prints. And uh, the field is going towards or really returning to the word identification. 
And in that paper, you argue that it's really all just the same thing. We just kind of switched out a word and um, not a whole lot really changed. Um, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, that, but that the field should go further in uh, cutting ties even further with the identification term because that still has implications of exclusion of all others, individualization, zero error rate, all this other stuff. That the, that term identification still has ties to all this other stuff that was problematic that the field has dropped, but it continues on despite the death of individualization as a term. Yeah. Is that a yeah. good summary yes. of the paper? Oh yeah, good. Yeah. Good. Um, so, uh, can you expand on that uh, uh, any more on problems that still remain with, in your view, of identification as a term, uh, and then where we should go instead? Like, what 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 other options do we have? Yeah, um, I I think that if 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 we say for the sake of argument that um, that the argument over the word to the ex the six words to the exclusion of all <laughs> others is right. over, okay, and that no one really wants to use those anymore. And if we say that even the argument over the word individualization is over now that the Department of Justice doesn't want to use it, and so that now we're on now we're arguing about identification. Um, and I do say in that article, and I still think today that, and I know you disagree, <laughs> that there are that there isn't really any logical difference between saying the defendant is the source, right? And the defendant is the source to the exclusion of all others. Okay. Um, the the second thing, so so that's that's one argument. I guess the second argument is um, what is that word? What has that word identification meant historically within the discipline? And so there is a lot of evidence that it meant that it was synonymous to individualization um, well, yeah. within the discipline. Uh, and one can even look at, uh, you can look at, uh, I've looked at standard operating procedures very recently that say the definition of identification is C individualization. Um, Jerry Laporte published an article just this year that said when finger, you know, no, when forensic scientists want to uh, narrow the donor pool, want to make a claim that the donor pool has been reduced to one. They okay. use the word identification. Um, so, so, so there is a reason. Uh, there is a strong. I think there's a strong argument to say that that word has that baggage of reducing the donor pool to one within the discipline. Okay. And that's a that's a problem if you're trying to change thinking in the discipline, uh, sort of redefining a word. Um, I mean, trying to change people's conceptualization in a discipline is difficult enough. Right. Uh, and I think it makes it even harder if you say this word, we're changing the meaning of a word rather than we're using a new word. Okay. And then the third thing is how to, how to lay people hear it. Right. right. And that's where you get to um, Henry Swafford and Jessica Sina's article and my colleague Bill Thompson is doing some uh, studies of um, ranking the how people hear the word identification and how much strength it has relative to various probabilities and numbers and other words and he finds they ranked it very strongly um, right so so, so there is about that one too yeah. where 
where, right where it was ranked very strongly and then the numbers were kind of uh, mixed up uh, a little bit or um, uh, or didn't have very a very a lot of variability between what numbers you used whether that be a hundred to a hundred thousand or so mm -hmm. that, uh, right right um, right right uh, and I think he finds that identification is heard very strongly I think stronger even than match okay um, and uh, so and I, I do I do think the the English language meaning of the word identification pretty strongly suggests that a consumer of the evidence would hear this to mean um, something pretty close to reducing the donor pool to one. I mean, I, I admit, I, identification is a tricky word. It has a lot of meanings. It does. Um, we have, you know, we identify as ethnicities and cultures and, um, and in forensics, it's been used to identify something as a sus substance, which is a quite different use of it. It's sort of like classification. Right. Um, but I, I do think, as Swafford does, that the, the word seems to have a lot of baggage with lay people that is probably going to be a problem. If the thing is, if, if what you're really trying to convey is that we're not trying to make a claim of reducing the donor pool to one anymore. So, um, in my view, first off, uh, we'll, we'll get back to some of those things here in a minute. Um, so I'd like to have a discussion on that. But in general, I think in, when before change happens, people have to see the alternative as being better than the, the, the current uh, status quo. Um, so uh, what, what would be your um, some alternative wording um, to to replace uh, identification. Yeah, I mean, I've I've always um, thought that cannot exclude is okay. Okay. Um, that that's a sort of defensible thing to say. Uh, it it has some probative value that you did that you compared prints and you did not exclude. Right. That is certainly has some significant. Yeah. Value. But I mean, as as. Um, as an expert at witness, um, who who uh, you know through uh, training experience, um, you know can go can go into court and express an opinion. That that's I don't know it'd be be kind of um, um, you know going doing the uh, the movie review for you know uh, for Star Wars or or The Godfather and saying you know acceptable you know it, it, it's, <laughs> I, I it's a bit I more than I that didn't as hate a, as a, yeah i didn't exactly there you go that's a better way i didn't hate it well um you know uh not that you know the the testimony that we should give should be completely um judged and and uh conform exactly to the standards set out by the courts because they're not they're not a scientific they don't have that scientific basis but um, to in expressing a scientific an opinion, an expert opinion, scientific opinion um, in uh, in court. I mean, you got other, you know, the the uh, and I've said this before. The medical examiner can go in and, and say the the cause or manner of death, um, and um, without having to coach it as well, it's not suicide, uh, and mm -hmm. and leaving it at that. What you know. Um, can we do better than just cannot exclude? 
Well, I think I think cannot exclude, if properly understood, is a little stronger than it's not suicide. Because I mean, if you do understand that there was an opportunity um, to exclude, right, and that failed, uh, then that can be pretty probative evidence. Uh, now, how, how do you yeah. convey that? Okay, um, but I, I think the. I mean, you're the. I think the broader point, the argument you're making, is kind of an underselling one, right? That it would be underselling the value of the evidence. Yeah, a bit. And, and well, so then there's this there's research that, that people, um, you know, associating or, or having some sort of understanding of the public at large, the potential juror pool of understanding of what identification is, um, uh, what's out there of uh, for these alternatives for like cannot exclude. Do do the, the potential jurors do they undervalue the evidence then when it's presented that way? Well, we don't know. Okay. Um, but I, I I would make two points. I mean, one, if you're worried about un- I don't quite understand worrying about underselling the evidence. If you if you agree with me, which you may not, right? That the latent print discipline oversold the probative value of the evidence. I can I can a, I can agree with that for a century. <laughs> then perhaps a little underselling is in order and we could try it right and we could see if we have a problem okay uh we don't know that underselling is going to be a huge problem true the this the second thing is the kind of jury comprehension test um that you hear a lot in these controversies we can't we can't use any new language until we've like field tested it on jurors and found out that they understand it properly. Now, I'm all for doing research on how juries understand testimony, and I think that's important research, and we should pay pay attention to it. But I'm a little bit uh, concerned about using it using it as a delaying tactic to change. Okay. And remember. We said identification and or we the latent print discipline <laughs> right. said identification and individualization for a century without field testing it True. on on jurors. You know, I, I I think that research should. So the the way I look at it is that that research is important, but the the first step for a scientific discipline, if a discipline wants to be a scientific discipline, is um, is Get, get your language right scientifically first, right, and then worry about the question of whether anyone can understand what you're talking about. Okay. Um, and but that, but don't yet don't let the comprehension question be something that gets in the way of saying something that's scientifically correct. Okay. I, on on um, I I agree with that because from from my perspective. The uh, um, how'd you put it earlier? Because there was you said two phrases. One with the six ex- little extra words. You, yeah. um, to the exclusion of all. Right, right. To the exclusion of all. What was the first part of it? Uh, so this person was the donor of the latent print mm-hmm. versus this person was the donor oh, of the latent print to the exclusion, to the exclusion of all. Of others. Like it was those two, and I I don't quite see that as the two options that we're being presented with, or of the way it was in the 2000s versus the 2010s now, where that's the only difference that was made. Um, I, I think it, it, as a field, we're not just saying, you know, this is the donor, and then uh, now, while in the past we said this is the donor to the exclusion of all others, 
Uh, I think there's a lot more explanation that goes into what um, the now identification term means. And for, for, from my perspective, I think, yes, we, we come up with what that association means. We, we you know, including any uh, weaknesses, uh, including any potential rate of error, um, uh, any limitations to whatever decision what we're making. But in the end, if that is all, again, if, if that is all then scientifically correct, then there shouldn't be a problem in, in summarizing all that information into uh, the word identification. Much like what you're suggesting, taking all that stuff that we're, because um, you're not saying, suggesting that we just go into court and say, can I exclude and walk out and drop the mic and be done, mm -hmm. but having all that explanation as well. So if all that is already in there um, and hopefully available, uh, you know, either as a supplemental part of the report or um, I was just talking with a coworker earlier uh, in the week about uh, with reports being emailed out all the time now, uh, if there has to be a definition of these terms like identification, well, it's pretty easy to put just a hot link in the in the PDF to click on, and then you have now you have uh, all the actual definitions of what what uh, what goes into all this stuff. Um, that getting all that right, you're right, is the important part. I think identification is more of an understandable concept. Uh, then then cannot exclude or or some of the other options that have been been out there mm -hmm. so so that's the sort of identification with explanation uh, approach right uh, and um, that does appear to be where the discipline is heading right, right now and I guess in in principle one has to say that given enough explanation that with enough explanation, any word would be okay, I guess. Um, and so, in in some sense, if if the explanation is proper, then that is probably is an improvement. Uh, I, I, you know, I still think it's unfortunate the discipline is so wedded to that word. But but uh, but I agree um, with an you know with an explanation that with a clear explanation that comes every time with with the evidence right. that says that. It doesn't mean what what you might think it means. Um, that that is a possible route, and it appears to be where the the you, compromise point to which right. the discipline is heading. And you you did kind of touch on a, a thing there is every making sure it's explained every time, which in a report you can do something for that. Um, uh, right now, a lot of it labs rely on the definition being in the policies which doesn't go out with every report, but is accessible to anyone who gets a report. Um, but uh, the tough part is in the courtroom because yeah. you may have, go into the courtroom with every intent to do this full explanation and you kind of get asked a little bit of a vague question about the conclusions. So you're like, okay, here's the conclusions and hoping, you know, expecting a follow-up question to go a little more in depth. Follow-up question never comes so now you're stuck because you never did the full explanation that you wanted to do uh, when you walked into the courtroom. And that's, I mean, that's kind of a limitation of the system. I, I, I have that, that problem going in to testify of not really knowing when to stop talking because I don't know if, the, if either side is going to follow up and hit on a, uh, ask a question more specifically to get to a point that I want to talk more specifically about. 
Uh, I'm sure you've had the same kind of uh, uh, experience in court as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, the the NRC report said that we want to move towards kind of standardized reporting, and I think that that's correct, uh, especially uh, when you're talking about what we're talking about, like the conclusion. Uh, I think everyone will be better off if if there's some kind of standardized terminology. It's in a written it's in a written report. Right. Um, the historically written reports in the latent print discipline have been pretty terse. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and, and perhaps if it's more, uh, if there's more verbiage in the report, then you don't get the questions, then, then in testimony, you just say that language and you don't get the questions, can you, can, what do you mean by identification? Because it's there in the report. True. Because it's the, as you say, it's the trying to extemporize um, well, I think what in would a happen, folksy way that then you get kind of you start confusing the issue. Yeah, and I think that it, putting it in the report would actually probably encourage that uh, that follow up of what do you mean by identification? Because you you do at some point have to go from what's written on the report, even if it's this full explanation, to then someone saying all of that in court for the jury to hear. Uh, so it, being there kind of allows and cues one side or the other at least to, to ask that follow-up question yeah. but you asked about what you know what I thought was okay testimony and right. and, um, and so you don't like I could not exclude I'm also I also like the US the Army crime labs approach the, gonna the, get into the, that. the Bayesian um, the kind of Bayesian statement I think that's a I'm a uh, I'm a proponent of that uh, language. I know not everybody is. So, um, I, I, so I'm curious about this kind of in two respects. So for, you kind of answered the first one of what do you think about the Army Crime Lab's um, report wording model? You're, you're a proponent of that as well. Um, and uh, so what about, so then, so they kind of, they stepped through. They first, they went from identification to this more Bayesian model without a number, Correct. but now they're using a number. Right. So um, are, you, are you, are you uh, re-proponent for that first change away from identification to their, their, their first step with Bayesian type wording without a number, or and also for their, final, their next step to using a number? Uh, yes, I was a proponent of the first step. Okay, and the second one? Oh, I think the second one is a good step. Okay. Um, Am I? I don't think I'm really enough a qualified enough statistician to evaluate their model, but I know right. that there are statisticians who will evaluate it. And I mean, and, and then it's kind of a question for them as to what the, right. what the problems will be with that model. And undoubtedly, I know enough about the field of statistics to know that some people will have criticisms of. Of that model, wait, statisticians um, disagree and argue right. with each other. Right? No. Um, which is to be expected. Right. Um, it's the first one, and uh, so I, I think that's all fine. Um, I, and, I, and so we'll, some of those issues will be flushed out. Right. So I, it seems to me that that the there it's still kind of up in the air. Not up in the air. It's not quite what I meant. But um, the, those issues still need to be you know, flushed out, that there are people that are going to argue about uh, the model, how well it works and not. And I, I'm actually genuinely surprised that they've used it in court, albeit 
military court, but they've used it in court before seemingly completing all that all that other stuff from the scientific part of it. Any any thoughts on that? I don't have a lot of thoughts on that. I mean, I I, I still think even if there are issues with their statistics, I, I find what they're saying more probabilistic than what we had before. Okay. So I think it's an improvement, even if you want to quibble with the statistics. With the I, number? I take that I take it over somebody giving categorical testimony. Okay. Anyway. Now. And then in terms of using it in in court, I mean it's interesting. We talked about how much uh, how much progress has been made. Right. And we, you know we we agreed on that, but the the. The statistical model for fingerprints has been kind of slow in coming. Well, <laughs> true. Uh, I, it, it, the idea's been out there for a long time. Well, for over 100 years. I mean, uh, Galton right, tried to but, do it. But in, but, in, but in terms of having people from Lausanne who you, you think, who you knew were capable of doing it, that's kind of more recent. Well, yeah, I would say yes and no because um, there's also a history in every decade going back to the 1800s of somebody else trying it. I, I think it's it's um, more progress has been made more recently because of computers uh, and being able to, to do the, that more recently. But I, I think the, the main reason why there isn't one currently in use, widespread use um, in crime labs isn't necessarily an effort thing or but more of a difficulty of the problem thing it, it's it's an extremely difficult thing to set up uh, uh, honestly otherwise Cedric would have figured this out you know ten years ago and and uh, you know in some respect he's still working on figuring out how to make this all work uh, it's just it's just a tough thing to do um, because it, it's just a difficult problem to solve well, yeah, uh, so some of those earlier models you referred to, I, I think, are individuality models in some sense, right? They were aimed at trying to estimate the likelihood of duplication of a set of friction ridges. Not True. A, not really a strength of evidence model. Yeah. Uh, now, yeah. maybe if you had the individuality model, that you know, maybe that was aiming ultimately at a strength of evidence model. But right. Yeah, I, I think that you could move from one to the other um, if you did the math right, uh, that the strength of the evidence goes up when the chance of duplication um, goes down. But, but at, well, at, you know, oh. as to your other point, it has been a long time coming, and right. there is something to be said for the Army Crime Lab kind of moving it, you know, insisting on moving it forward. Jumping in. Um, yeah. Maybe with not a perfect model. Right. But it does move the conversation forward. Well, okay, so theoretically now with the probability model, there there comes the now inclusion of you know, very marginal latent prints uh, that in the past would have just been either A, not compared, or B, if compared, given a conclusion of inconclusive, or a result of inconclusive, that now you know, may be presented with a... Um, relatively low uh, score or, or probability uh, of association um, they, that may now also be included. Uh, just want to get your thoughts on 
the probability model basically supporting what what's already is an identification, but then uh, giving the examiner and all the lawyers and and everyone else, the triers of fact, some sort of idea of you know really strong evidence or you know more medium evidence. Uh, but now also including a whole new realm of latent prints that would just be low evidence that in the past, in almost every case, would have just never made it into the courtroom at all and never provided any kind of association before. Um, any kind of thoughts on, on now the potential for this new class of latent prints to come into court? Well, I, I agree it's going to uh, complicate things legally and change people's perceptions of what fingerprint evidence is, but I think you can't be opposed to it and say you're still thinking scientifically. Uh, evidence exists along a continuum of probability, and I can't be for draw, you know, categories, right? Drawing right. some kind of bright line uh, along that continuum. So, uh, so that's going to happen, and, um, you know, yeah, I think it'll be complicated, but but maybe over time it will bring about the change that probabilistic thinkers want, which is right. to think about f fingerprint evidence as a probabilistic form of evidence. People do not think of it that way today. Right, today. Um, many in the discipline don't think of it that way, and then many lay people don't think of it that way. So over time, people will encounter fingerprint evidence as a very different thing as some, sometimes low probability evidence and, and we'll have factual scenarios right where somebody was innocent but they were associated by low probability fingerprint evidence and, and you won't have this this uh, aura of infallibility well hmm. it's an interesting trade-off to make of including now this this low probability evidence where then sometimes associations will be incorrect where in the past I think that that's where the the especially for the old school people that's where they're coming from is well we don't you know we don't want to do this probability stuff because then that means we also include this low probability stuff and if we include this low probability stuff then that's going to be wrong you know uh, more often and uh, our you know our goal is when we make an association of fingerprints just to not be wrong uh, I think that's the the basis of where people that are don't want to move into the probability or prob don't want to see or testify to latent prints as being a probabilistic uh, evidence. Um, they don't want to go because they they want to only make IDs when they're the risk of being wrong is you know super super low. Yeah. So I mean, I think I think. You'll, you see in my earlier historical writings about this that uh, I, I, I think I'm sympathetic that I understand why the discipline wanted to do that right? and why it seemed like a good idea or even a noble idea at the time. Let's, um, let's create some rules for this kind of evidence where we will, um, we will sacrifice the marginal evidence and only use very strong evidence and then never be wrong right and uh and it i mean it was very consciously a, a sacrifice of evidence with probative value right 
and I and I and I do say in one of those early articles that they were sort of consciously trying to distinguish themselves from other expert witnesses, uh, in particular question document examiners who were always uh, disagreeing over the evidence, and uh, psychologists or right. alienists as they called them back then. Right? <laughs> um, and, um, but. So, so in some sense, it was a noble idea, except right. with two problems. You're claiming absolute certainty when you shouldn't be, shouldn't doing, be that. doing that. And you're kind of violating probabilistic thinking by thinking categorically. Um, I, and I, well, I, I don't think that that's, that's necessarily a problem in the field. Um, the, like, um, you know, the toxicology or drug chemistry sections will set thresholds and, um, and report Categorically, that something is or uh, is a uh, is cocaine or cocaine for Cedric, um, uh, or is not detectable, um, and um, and not worry about the stuff that comes close to that threshold. You know, in other a little bit related to forensics, the like medical examiner, uh, you know, may look at a totality of evidence but not present it in probabilistic terms. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think it's unscientific or, um, or going against the, the tenets of what the lawyers want from expert witnesses to uh, present an expert opinion in categorical terms. Uh, well, I, I think the... Um... I mean, I think even the drug chemists got some criticism when they had a category where they were saying there's no uncertainty uh, attached to these conclusions. Um, obviously, it's not completely unscientific to draw thresholds, especially especially if they're somehow quantified or made objective in, in some way. I do think it's problematic if the thresholds are all in people's minds and and, and subjective, uh, and you're also describing kind of keep getting staying away from evidence that's close to the threshold, so you don't have these cliff effects. And again, I would say I, I, I don't think it's a problem, or problematic, or unscientific to do that, as long as you say that that's what you're doing. So right. uh, as long as you as long as you don't say zero error rate, I can't be wrong. Um, to the exclusion of all others, uh, but, and you you coach it as uh, couch it, coach it, couch, couch it. it. Yeah. Thank you. Couch it as um, as uh, I have a general threshold that I must reach before going to this identification category, and um, here is documenting why I've reached this category. Um, it, it's not a you know, numerical or statistical threshold, but I believe that I'm in this category. Describe all, you know, describing all of that, and then saying, you know, this is now my 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 opinion. Um, again, as long as I think this is going back to the full explanation of what the decision is, I don't like the argument of something being more or less scientific. I don't think that's a that's a a. Uh, a measurement, a, a met, part of the metric system of scientificity, uh, of uh, you know, math being more scientific than biology, or that um, probabilistic results are better in some sort of sense than um, categorical results. They're definitely different, but I, I don't see one as being better than the other. 
Yeah, and I, I, I agree with you, and I try not to use the words more, more oh, and less scientific, scientific if I can avoid it. Um, and I, I guess I resorted to it in the previous answer um, because it seemed like you, you were asking, well, okay, if we, if we switch over to a probabilistic framework, we're going to have this evidence of marginal probative value, and, and what do I think of that? And right. so I, I guess what I was trying to convey is I could see why um, defense attorneys who I work with might be concerned about that. Um, I was going to get to that. <laughs> right? It's not clear that criminal defendants will gain from moving to a probabilistic framework. Yeah, the, the identifications will weaken a little bit. Right. But lots of evidence that used to be discarded might be used right now against them. Um, but, but that's the criminal defendant. I'm not a criminal defendant. And what I was trying to say was I don't think I have any principled basis to oppose Got it. The, the use of marginal evidence. Um, so I talked to Glenn, um, uh, or I texted Glenn before you know we did this, and, and he sent me a couple of uh, of, of questions, um, and we kind of hit on on most of them uh, already. But th there's one more I wanted to, to to that he said I wanted to throw out. So uh, I, this is all kind of set up as some way to segue into this random question. Um, we Glenn and I a couple episodes ago talked about uh, an article. I believe it was the one from Voss uh, out of Puerto Rico. Uh, and in it, um, he talked about um, you know, different ways to uh, combat or fight against or argue against or get thrown out uh, forensic evidence that you know, goes going against the defendant. Um, and in talking about the uh, fingerprints, uh, one of the quotes in there was that the error rate in fingerprints can be as high as 1 in 18. And so uh, Glenn's kind of question onto you is, do you really think it can, that fingerprint evidence it can be as high as one in 18 times that we're making an erroneous identification? I, I mean, Glenn's argument is, uh, is kind of the, the practical one of, we would just see a lot more That's the thing uh, I erroneous say. identification. If it were really one in 18, right. um, we would see a lot more erroneous identification. And he, he doesn't make that argument uh, as often as I do, but uh -huh. yeah. I guess if, if I guess I would say this. If you if you're trying to match up an error rate found from controlled studies to the error rate we try to infer from what we know about actual errors in known cases. Okay. Right? And I you're, I'm sure you're you're well aware of the limitations of inferring an error rate from, yes, from known cases, right? So we, we, we discover some, but we cannot assume that we've discovered all of the ones that actually exist, right? So we, can't, so we can't assume that every case that was not exposed as an erroneous identification was therefore a correct identification. So there have to be a lot there have to be a lot of undiscovered erroneous identifications and I think in my articles I've made pretty good arguments for why it's probably a lot more than like the ones we know about 
that they, it probably is the, t the ones we know about are probably the tip of some iceberg in some sense. Okay. Uh, now, whether that iceberg is 10 times as big or 100 or 1,000 or 10,000, I, I no right. it's really hard, hard to know. So, so you're talking about what we can infer from the iceberg, uh, and if you're thinking about that, then and trying to then one in eighteen does seem pretty high. Okay. In, in that in that sense, uh, it is true that PCAST was saying could be as high as one in 18, one in eighteen, right. right? So they're saying it's the upper bound of the ninety-five percent confidence interval, which means even PCAST is saying it's. You know, it's pretty unlikely to be one in eighteen. It's more right. likely to be at the middle of the confidence right. interval. And and that was um, um, in a study without verification. So I think they should have they should have you know clarified that you know while they they're trying to infer things from this this article the this the the Miami Dade uh, Pacheco uh, article that um, the quality assurance measures that are in place almost universally um, would tend to reduce that uh, even more, which I, I don't think they made very clear uh, either. It, it seemed like they kind of just let out that 1 in 18, just kind of dropped it out there without, in my view, all the appropriate caveats that go with that, like this is the upper bound. We're not mentioning the lower bound, which you know is way down at the other end, and this is also when there's no uh, or virtually no quality assurance steps that go along with that decision. Well, but yeah, so then the words could be as high as are right. very important. Perhaps it, whoever's listening to them has to understand what those mean. A statistically trained person would know what that means. Right. And um, that's, that's... When, it, when I do pre I did calculate the lower bound so that when I give presentations, I explain what what they meant. Right. And you, you can't explain how PCAS got those numbers without explaining both the upper and the lower bound. Right. Right. All right. Well, I think uh, we've had a pretty good uh, discussion here. I know you got a, a, an airplane to catch back to California. Um, you want to get out of the, the 100 degree uh, heat we have today. but. Um, uh, thank you, Simon, so much for coming on the Double Loop Podcast. Uh, it's been great to have you. Um, I know Glenn uh, is going to be, uh, you know, sad he missed out uh, on the opportunity to, to join us in uh, directly, but we kind of just set this up last minute. Uh, I'm sorry to miss him too. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll get some of his comments uh, following, you know, after we wrap up here. But thank you so much for for coming on and. Um, actually kind of you know disappointed we didn't get to go through that whole Daubert thing while you were in <laughs> town um, kind of fell apart before our eyes uh, if people have any kind of follow-up questions for you uh, how would they get a hold of you for that I'm at the University of California Irvine uh, in the Department of Criminology Law and Society so you can find my web page there my emails scole at uci.edu all right um, I'm hope, hopefully everyone out there in the podcast audience uh, enjoyed our little talk here with Simon. And um, so we'll say goodbye for now and uh, rejoin um, with Glenn through the magic of podcast editing. All right. So uh, we're back. A big thanks to Simon Cole for sitting down and talking to me. Uh, that was, it was a great conversation. 
And obviously we have our differences of opinion on different things, but it was you know really interesting. And, and I do appreciate uh, the time he took you know to talk with us and actually learned quite a bit about uh, you know his past and how he got into latent prints and into the the Simon Cole that people in the fingerprint community know. And you know maybe a lot of people didn't know kind of how he got to the point where he he became this kind of a critic of latent prints, uh, and then. You know, you know, a lot of us know kind of the history from there. So, uh, Glenn, what were kind of the, some of the things that you, that stuck uh, out for you uh, listening to it? Yep. Uh, well, first, let me start with it was actually a, a really great interview. And I just want to compliment you on uh, directing the interview. And you were very prepared and knew these articles. And I really enjoyed just listening to it. I found myself getting sucked into it. <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, I, uh, I, I just... I also learned a lot about Simon's past that some of the things I didn't know either is when he was in grad school and the direction of, you know, of his work. That was pretty cool. So uh, I'm going to hijack things a little bit by talking about my experience with Simon because it'll help, I think, the listeners understand how I know Simon. Okay. And then, and then I'll talk about some specifics in, in the interview. So if, if you don't mind a little bit. Yeah. All right. So the first time I saw Simon Cole was 2002. This is right after the Plaza decision that happened in February. And then like a couple weeks later, there was a conference at, uh, I think it was DePaul University in Chicago, a uh, uh, law school. Right. And uh, Simon Cole was there and David Stoney was there and a couple other people were there. Um, but it was my first time seeing two out of the three of the witnesses in the first Daubert hearing that you guys talked about, the Mitchell case. Right, right. And so Simon was one of the early speakers in the program, and I listened to what he said, and I find I find his uh, his nature of a historian and these things very compelling and interesting. But he said some things that sort of bothered me right then and there. Uh, you know, he talked about the Thomas Jennings case. You know, this is Illinois. And he basically said, you know, and we don't know how accurate fingerprint examiners are. And even with the Jennings case, we don't know if they got it right or wrong. You know, who knows? And he kind of left it hanging as this guy Jennings, this funda- you know, this foundational case in Illinois. Maybe they got it wrong, you know, in the beginning. We we don't know. And this is back in and like nineteen eleven. Eleven, right? Nineteen eleven, the first case in the united states right. right and so i went up to him afterwards and i said you know simon the the issue here is it's about documentation because they didn't document the way we document today if they recorded the images the way we would record them today we could answer this question so it's not really i mean you know i know it, it sounds more interesting this way but it, it's really more of an issue of the standards of documentation and forensic science today than this phantom, we don't know if they got it wrong or not. Because, frankly, back then, they needed so much to make an ID that, and across multiple fingers, which this was, a multiple finger ID, it probably got right, but without (laughs) the image, we don't know this. So it's more that. And so I actually had a copy of his book with me, and he signed it, and so I've got his signed book that says, Good Point. And and that was really (laughs) nice of him. So that was my first introduction to Simon. And then, um, you know, I saw David Stoney speak, and I was really impressed with David. I mean, I just, 
you know, I, we could, again, do another episode on all of his accomplishments and his papers and his insights. And I love Stoney so much. And I've always been a big fan of him. In fact, he was on my PhD committee when I was in Lausanne and got my PhD. And he asked one of the most difficult questions on my committee. And one of those questions that I gave a, a BS answer at the time, but actually wrote in later in my thesis went, like, I got asked this during my oral review. And I want to come back to that because this was the best question I was asked of the entire panel. And I, we can talk about that in another one. But right. it, was, it, I, it was it was very, very compelling, and I, and I love Stoney so much. So I got to see both of these guys. And then I turned around and wrote a paper um, and did a presentation. Uh, and the presentation was my first big professional presentation <laughs> on a national level. And the paper was uh, Defense Against the Dark, Dark Arts. Arts. Right. Defending Against the Critic's Curse. And I talked about three critics that I had the opportunity to study and learn a little bit from. Simon Cole, James Stars, and David, David Stoney. Stoney. Right. And all three of them were the three defense experts in the first Daubert hearing. I know in the interview you talked about Michael Sachs. And I think even Cole brought up Sachs a little bit. But it was actually James Stars who was the third expert right. in the Daubert hearing. But, all right, point aside. So I, 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 re I sort of reviewed them, and I wasn't very kind to Simon Cole. In fact, I kind of poked a little fun about what is this, so, you know, what is this degree that he has, and really what is that, and his, his arguments were very thin, and, and frankly, I, I, I will stand by this, and back in 2001, 2002, Simon's attack on fingerprints was very broad, it, and they weren't very well refined. When I listened to this interview and over the last 10 years of getting to know Simon Cole, he has refined his arguments with a laser point, and yep. they are they're dead on. I cannot disagree with a lot of his arguments today. Back then, they were very, very broad, and now he's read so much. He understands our literature so much. I loved how when you guys were talking about model, statistical models – those models of individuality versus caseworking models that have likelihood ratios, the fact that he understood that nuance and could bring that out, I was extremely impressed with that. That is, that's master level stuff that he was able to make that distinction and, you know, kind of challenge you a little bit on that. And I, I really love that. So, you know, I've watched this evolution of Simon's arguments over the years. So I wrote this article, and I will say that in 2010, I think it was, I had a, my first chance to really sit down with him and a bunch of other authors. And um, we all sat in a room, David Stoney and Jennifer Manukin and uh, Reisinger and Sachs and, I don't know, just tons of other people, all these critics and different people you know, with different views. And one of the things I made sure when in that article was that I actually regretted writing that article a couple of years after writing it because although i stand by what i said about stars because he either outright lied in court or was just so stupid and ignorant that i, I can't stand when people <laughs> basically are 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 telling falsehoods on on the stand right si simon I never had that issue with. I just I found his arguments to be vague and broad in the beginning, but over the years I've come to appreciate how he's refined them and and stuck to his story. He's never expanded beyond this is what I'm saying, and he's never gone beyond that. He's never extended his expertise. He's never called himself a latent print expert or any of these things. He's always maintained a very even level argument that I I, I can't disagree with these days. So. 
I I am publicly retracting some of the early things I said about Simon Cole that were unnecessary and a bit unfair, I think. So uh, live and learn. Uh, this was my youth and this was my full head of steam. And, you know, I, I look back now and go, I, I wouldn't do that article again if, if I had the opportunity. So saying that now. Well, you've, you've both grown over the years. Yeah, I, I, that's very, very fair. And in fact, I loved working with him on that project in 2010. And he brought a great perspective to that article. So the other thing I want to talk about is that in 2000, I think it was five, he came to Minnesota and he was in our very first Fry Mac challenge to fingerprints in Minnesota. And in 2005, I found myself in the position of having to defend fingerprints in basically a Daubert style hearing. Right. But we didn't, we didn't have any data or experiments other than the one that Casey Wertheim and I had done in 2005 or so. But we weren't able to talk about it. On, I wasn't able to talk about it on the stand because I didn't have the raw data that I could provide Simon Cole and the attorney representing. So basically, even though we had done a pretty poor error rate study, which I fully admit and, and still admit today, like I recommend to examiners, do not cite that study as an error rate study. It's not an error rate study. It's an investigation of training error rates at right. best. It's, it's not a good. It's not not a good study. What's all we had at the time, and it was it was informative more than anything else we had at the time. So, I found myself on the stand in two thousand five in this case, going, uh, I'm saying all the right things, quote unquote, right things to the profession, but I found myself in a position of if I just had some data, this would be so easy. I could just shut them down, but I we didn't have any experiments back then other than what Casey and I had just worked on and were drafting and hadn't even quite published yet. And, and that was the uh, the data from teaching the um, Ridgeology class. The, right, right? The, the, the old Pat Wertheim class. Right, the old Pat Wertheim class. Uh, that yes. then Pat passed on to Casey, and then you took over from there. And, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. So this the the... Which were all basically ground truth exercises, but... You know, yep. in a training environment and, you know, yep. exactly. So definitely weaknesses in the um, in, in the data. Uh, but like you said, it's what you guys had at the time. Yeah, it was the only thing available. And we were the only ones that were sort of kind of putting our asses on the line by willing to publish this. Because we were being told by, and I won't name names here, but high people in the profession, well-known names going, you can't publish this. You cannot publish error rate data. Just go with the party line of zero error. If you even open the door, what are you doing here? And we you know, we ignored their advice because we thought like, at that time, I mean, to Casey, you know, Casey's credit and my credit, we we didn't want to go along with the zero error rate. We didn't believe in the zero error rate approach. Right. And we thought that if we published something, we could show the profession this is not the end of the world. The sky is not falling. You can actually say it happens rarely, one in a thousand or whatever it might be, and it will not kill fingerprints. But we were being accused by people behind the scenes of you're bringing this profession down. So... Uh, anyway, uh, but my point being is when I walked out of that hearing, even though the judge allowed the fingerprint evidence, Simon Cole did his you know usual spiel back then, I drove home the whole way going, this sucks. I need real data. I need real data, and I'm tired of waiting for other people, i.e. the FBI or other agencies, to do these studies. 
I'm going to do it myself. And in fact, when I went back to the lab, that's when I started the first black box study, which was the method performance study at the BCA. And I told Simon it was because of him. It was because of that hearing and the things that they brought up and me going, even though I said, again, all the right answers that were appropriate for the profession at the time, I was still thinking in my head, I just wish I had data. I just wish I had data. If I had data, they would just shut up and leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I didn't have it. Right. So I got it. And then we did another hearing in 2000, I want to say, oh, it was not, it was nine because it was the Hull case. It was the first right. case where the, to the exclusion of all others, we wouldn't say that thing and, you know, the, all this. And in the Hull case, now I had the me method performance data from our 2009 study of the BCA examiners. And we walked in the courtroom. I had never been so confident in my life because we had error rates. We had CTS error rate data for just our laboratory, not right. like the national data, but I had done a full analysis of all of our CTS tests. So we had our error rates under our system. We had this method performance error rates, false positives, false negatives, biasability, reproducibility, repeatability. I, like, I had just data, 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 data. And they had a really good defense attorney in that case too. And afterwards, I'm, you know, and Cedric testified and when we walked out of the courtroom, I mean, I remember the, their attorney coming up to me. And I remember even Simon Cole seeing the courtroom kind of turning to, you know, the defense attorney. And he had, just had this look on his face. We wouldn't say zero error rate. We wouldn't say to the exclusion of all others. And we had data. I remember the look on Simon's face was just like, mm -hmm, they're kind of doing okay here. Like, that's what <laughs> and, he's been talking about for, you know, 10 years so far back then. They, they, and, right. and you basically were following along with, with the big criticisms that he had uh, through those first 10 years. Yeah, I mean, this was Cedric's and my plan from the beginning when we went into this was take the stick away. Just take the stick away from the, the, I mean, the beat you with. And when we walked out of the courtroom, even the defense attorney walked up to us and went, and I, I, I'll, he, he's this great defense attorney from Chicago who did a great job there. He came to Minnesota and now he's out east. He's a great defense attorney. He turned to us and said, wow, you guys kicked my ass. And I went, oh, well, thank you. I, that, that means a lot to me. He said, no, I got my ass handed to me. <laughs> I went, well, thank you. That's, that's very kind of you to say that. Uh, I, and all, all I really wanted to you know, acknowledge was we were prepared. We had data. Right. Well, it's good. To, and, it's so good to have data. <laughs> it, it is. And then when we did this again in 2011, I think, in Minneapolis, with Simon Cole again. So he's been to Minnesota three times on Fry, on various Fry hearings. And we did it again in 2011. I, I'm not exaggerating here. Eric, this is amazing. We were taking the stand on, on Monday. The FBI black box study had come out on Sunday evening. Oh, and so wow. we walked into the courtroom, not only with all the previous data, but then the black box data on Monday morning. Oh, my God. It was amazing. <laughs> Talk about so data, I know, the black box. That's the king yes. of data studies. Yeah, it, it, it is. And we just kept just rattling off these data. And Cedric was talking about his study and his, you know, his statistical models and this. And in fact, we know we were the first people to ever present the black box data in the courtroom because <laughs> it had been 12 hours since it actually had been released. Right, right. So it just couldn't have been, it couldn't have been better timing. And each time I got these hearings got easier and easier because I had more and more data. And then, as you know, in some past episodes, not too long ago, I did these various Daubert hearings. And I, I, look, I, I'm, 
I'm not trying to come off as cocky in any way. <laughs> My point is, with data, these things are easy. If you have the data, they become so much easier. You just yes. refer to the studies. And, you know, and look, these studies have limitations, and they have the things you have to bring out. And But... I testified in 2005 with no data. I testified in 2018 with you know, 20, 30, 40 studies that I can refer to. It is night and day experience. And I, I would recommend to every single person listening to this podcast who might ever have to testify in an admissibility hearing, uh, please get data. Please take those data with you. Please read those studies. Know them. And it's it's a shield and armor that will protect you in these hearings. Absolutely. And... and- it's, I mean, yeah, you got to learn, you know, the references, you got to learn some of the numbers, but you're the expert. I mean, that's kind of, I mean, that's, that's your job is to know these things and be able to describe them to, to the layperson in court. Um, and, and that's the sad thing is when you, when you, you know, hear or see people, uh, you know, going into court and not being able to reference these things. Because, yes. um, oh, they're not comfortable talking about numbers or remembering all this data, remembering what exactly. all these things are. I'm like, well, okay, A, that's your job. You're the expert. You're supposed to be the one that knows all this stuff. And B, it answers all these questions. Like, the the key thing, if you just go up to a random person on the street and say, hey, you know, I, um, uh, I, I work in a crime lab. I uh, compare fingerprints. You know, and start having a conversation about that. Within the first five minutes, one of the first questions that basically everybody asks you is, "Well, so how much is enough? Like, how much do you need before you, you know, call an ID?" And you can go through, and I mean, the big one with that is is um, is Cedric's paper at the Royal Statistical Society um, Journal, but that answers that question, and and it you know has tons of data to back it up, and. Whatever you're going to say, there's there's papers out there to support what you're saying, and um, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and, and and I love that Simon acknowledged that. I mean, you asked him specifically, so we've made progress, we've advanced, and he was so he 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 was very supportive of it and said, yeah, you guys are the probably the best discipline in forensic science, and then some distinction with DNA when it comes to these other issues. You guys have done your homework, and he was very I, almost flattering in his praise about how we have evolved from when he was, you know, two thousand two thousand one to where we are today. He recognizes that without a doubt. And and you know, to give him credit, I think part of that is from him. You know, is is his push, so, his yes. criticism has yes. really pushed us to improve and to be better uh, yes. over these past you know, almost 20 years that he's, that he's been involved in our discipline. So this is why I was telling the story because ultimately for me personally, he has actually been a big motivator. And this is what I told him the 2005 trial where I had no data, this whole thing motivated me to do that first study. And then each time coming back, you know, when we came back in the whole case, dropping the exclusion of all others and the, you know, coming in with more data. And then and just each time, this has been a motivating factor for me to improve so that I come in with more and more defense, if you will, you know, against, against the dark arts. <laughs> well, and, and, his, and his arguments have evolved over time. Yes. They've become very specific to these things. And basically, as I became familiar with his stick, his particular, if you will, 
curse. <laughs> I've learned how to <laughs> defend against that particular curse, or you know, the take the stick away. And um, and and over time, he's been again very supportive and flattering of you know the work that you know, me and you and Henry Swafford and other other people have done in the profession, the FBI and. He's, he's been supportive of that, but he's still, and this is one thing I'm going to share with the listeners, and if he, if he listens to this, I hope he'll appreciate me telling this last story, is that he, he will never, I think, ever sort of back away and go, well, it's perfect now. It's fine. <laughs> Everything's fine. He's always pushing a little bit, and we had a right. really nice conversation in 2010, I think it was, after... Um, I want to say it was after that uh, article we wrote uh, at UCLA with Jennifer Manukin, and, and he, he kind of, he said something, I don't remember what he even led it to, but he said something along the lines of, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, and Simon, if you're listening, this isn't exactly what you said, but it's the spirit of what you said was, I know what my role is in all of this, and my role is to keep poking you guys and prodding you guys. I shouldn't have to. You guys should be motivated to do this on your own, but I know I'm playing the advocate here, uh, the devil's advocate, and this is making you guys better. And so I will always be poking and prodding you, and this is the role that I play. And I, I actually, I've walked away from that going, I respect that. I have no problem with that. And I compare and contrast that to someone like the Habers, who I have yeah. serious problems with because their arguments are either outright false or incorrect or misinformed. I mean, this isn't difference of opinion. Like, they say factually incorrect things right. in the courtroom, whereas Simon does not say that. He has a difference of opinion that I respect in certain instances. He's very well informed and he's very knowledgeable. But when I go against Haber and he's actually outright misinforming juries and judges, I mean, incorrect information, factually provable, incorrect information, right. I mean, long, long list of things that he has said, these are very different critics to me. And I have a lot of respect for Simon, whereas I don't necessarily have this respect for some of the other critics. But Simon, you know, I appreciate this role of I'm going to be there to push you guys and make you a little bit better. And he's done a great job of that in the last 10 years. So if, I will say this. If I ever get a case right now and I see that Simon Cole is going to be for the defense in the Daubert or Fry hearing, uh, and I'm going to probably come in for prosecution, um, I, I'm not worried about it because I like Simon. In fact, I look forward to it. I, I, I like him a lot, and um, that's taken me a long time to get there. I've evolved. He's evolved. Um, and I really enjoyed the interview between you guys, and I thought you explored some really cool stuff. Well, it's great. It was it was interesting earlier in the day before the interview when we were in court uh, because the, we were waiting for quite a while between the original examiner, uh, you know, who had come in, who was super nervous about you know being involved in this uh, in this court case with Simon Cole as the defense expert coming in, and and you know there there were basically four of us, you know, latent print examiners that were all involved one way or the other on this case. That the prosecution wanted to bring all of us in at some point, um, you know, to, to talk about our involvement, uh, and then Simon was there for for defense. And uh, while so before I got started, all of a sudden, you know, the the judge and the attorneys all kind of go back into the judge chambers and and they have a long discussion about what's going to be happening with that whole other issue. 
And uh, so you know, we just started chatting and, you know, we're talking about our kids and, you know, you know, what plans for the summer. And I think everyone kind of relaxed a bit in just that conversation, you know, between us print people and, uh, and Simon, you know, it kind of cut the tension a little bit. And I, I was kind of disappointed that we didn't actually get to go forward with, uh, with, yeah. with the yeah. hearing. Um, but, uh, on the other hand, got to get a great interview out of it. So, yeah. You know, one more thing I'm going to say about Simon, a compliment here, is that I have seen him on these panels at II and other meetings, and I have seen some examiners get angry and up in his face, and I will give him, let me just give him ultimate credit here, he's always remained calmed, yep. he has always been just, again, sticking to the main points, not go, you know, not, well, you guys did that, he's always been like right on point, stayed on message, and he never gets upset or flustered or anything. And he's really, he's taken, a, I'm going to say, he's taken a lot of crap over the years from yes. examiners, and myself included. I've thrown a little bit his way, a little bit shade his way. And uh, he has always been so kind, professional, and taken it in stride and not ever really let that affect him in any way. And I, I got to give him a lot of credit for that. That's, um, that's a, a rare gentleman and a scholar. I, I remember the first time I, I saw him or met him in person. He probably doesn't remember because this was just a you know one face in a crowd at a, at a conference in uh, Southern California, where he was uh, to, it was a kind of an organized debate with um, you know one of the the old time guys from Southern California that had basically trained most of the people in um, yep, you know, in that I part of the that. state. <laughs> and uh, you know, coming out of it, I actually thought. You know, he he basically won that debate, um, and but it took a lot of courage coming into a conference of latent print people, where yeah. basically you know he, he's kind of guaranteed that no one's going to agree with him, and uh, and he also he's stuck with it for almost twenty years now. Uh, it, it, like you said, pushing us to be better, and and I think we have gotten better. Uh, you know, obviously we still disagree on some points, uh, but. You know, a lot of the, especially the things that he was pushing for, the big things he was pushing for back in the day, you know, we really adopted and embraced uh, as a discipline and, and, uh, it's made us better. And, um, uh, so, so kudos to him for, uh, for that involvement over the years. So I, uh, I'll say this, here's my last thing I'll, I'll bring up from the interview that, and this is probably my biggest sticking point with him right now and the thing I disagree and here I think we have already discussed this and he sort of knows this um, is I we experienced this in the 2011 case when the judge turned to each of the witnesses me and Cedric and Simon and another person Sandy Zabel from Chicago has written a critical paper on fingerprints he turned to every single witness and said okay Let's assume that we're not going to say to the exclusion of all others, what should we say? And, you know, Simon Coles, of course, said, you know, um, cannot exclude. Cannot exclude, yeah. Right, and, you know, you guys discussed this. And even the judge kind of listened to what he said and went, and, and, and he had this great look on his face. And he basically said, come on. Come on. <laughs> I mean, can't, can't we be a little more precise than that? And, and I love that phrase because it's exactly how I want to word it myself was, 
if you think about all the categories, and if we just think about fingerprints now, and let's, I'm going to break it down. Let's assume that you've got this, these big arrows going to the left and to the right, and on the far left you've got an exclusion, and then you've got leaning towards an exclusion. Let's say, let's say we're question document examiner, so highly probable an exclusion, and then maybe indications of an exclusion, and inconclusive, and indications of an identification, and highly probable identification yep. and finally identification. you have all these categories when you say i didn't hate it like you guys said in the interview well i didn't hate it or or <laughs> in this case not excluded I, th I thought that was a great analogy not excluded all that means is you've got six or seven other categories that this could be and that's my problem is it's not specific enough. Let's say you have seven categories you can assign a latent print to or seven categories you can assign a movie to in your movie rating. And all you do is take off the farthest left one. I didn't hate it or an ex not an exclusion. You're left with could be a, an exclusion, uh, very strongly exclusion, complete inconclusive, could be an ID, very strongly possibly an ID versus an ID. Anywhere on that continuum, it, it, the evidence could fall. And even the judge looked at him and said, can't we be a little more precise than this? And I completely agree. Um, when, in terms of the likelihood ratio, what he's basically saying is you can just get rid of the uber negative number. But all other numbers are possible. And that's my problem is, oh, no, 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 no. When you've got features in agreement and you've got correspondence, we should not, we were far to the right side now. And we're looking at almost an ID to an ID. These are completely different things than an exclusion or almost an exclusion. And that's my problem is that we know that fingerprints are more discriminating than that based yes, on Cedric's study. Discrimination, yes. Right. And other studies, but particularly Cedric's study, we know it's more discriminating than that. So I, I get his point, and I, in fact, I loved his argument of, well, why not try it? You've been overexpressing evidence for That's years. That's what I was about to say next. Is is I, it's, is okay? And and then for that, I'll go back to what my mom told me since as far back as I can remember, and that two wrongs don't make a right. <laughs> well said, sir. I love it. Just yeah, because we were overstating it yes. in the past doesn't mean that yes. we should now understate it in the future. If we know it's wrong to un to overstate it and we know it's wrong to understate yes. it, we shouldn't do either one. We should find a more appropriate thing. Just because it was wrong before doesn't mean we should uh, go wrong the other way now. Yeah, and if he and other people are pushing us to be more accurate, what the science supports, etc., then let's get it right. Let's not go the other way and err on Because I really do agree with that judge who, with common sense, just looked at him and went, come on, can't, can't we be a little more precise than that based on what I've heard over the last few days? And, you know, and Simon went, no, no, I don't think you can. And even the judge went, hmm, I don't know about that. And he just had this look on his face. Now, quick side note, ultimately, that judge asked all four of the witnesses can we at least say to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty? And me, and me, Cedric, Simon Cole, and Zabel all said, oh no, 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 we can't say that phrase. We don't know what it means. There's no actual meaning in forensic science. This is legalese. This right. is something invented by lawyers. It has no actual meaning to us. And what did that judge write in his final opinion? Oh, uh, sure. Uh, the examiner cannot say to the exclusion of all others, but she was more than welcome to use to a reasonable, reasonable degree, degree of scientific, scientific certainty. 
which was then upheld by the state of Minnesota of Supreme Court when it went up to Supreme Court or the appellate court or whatever. The appellate court went, oh, yeah, we like this phrase. Oh, that's we're, nice. We're, yeah. we're, even though all four witnesses for both sides said, oh, no, absolutely not. That's stupid. So, it's, uh, anyway, it's... Uh, I, I just want to leave that uh, that story there on the table because I it, it's funny and that's the one thing I disagree with with Simon on is I think we can be more specific than cannot exclude. Right. But I agree it's a complex problem and that for many years, um, in fact, I'm in the position right now that when I write my reports, he talked about if you have the right explanation, it doesn't matter what word you use as long as you have the explanation there. Right. And I have I have now turned in my private cases to having the explanation. So right after I say identification, I explain what that means. Right. And I focus now on the explanation because I do think Simon's right on that aspect. As long as you make it very clear what you mean by identification, even though it's nuanced and has all these little, like you said, baggage was the word he used. Look, if it's in my report and it's in my testimony, how other people perceive it, I don't know what more I can do. I'm being as explicit as I can. It is quite possible they might interpret it as something else, but I have done my due diligence in at least clearly stating what I'm meaning by it. Right, and if if you don't, if you are uh, hemmed in by the limitations of only answering the questions that you're asked in court. Good point. At least it's in the report, and one side or the other can hopefully ask you more specific questions so that uh, you can you can make those clarifications uh, that that you should be making, uh, even though you are limited. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Glenn, for uh, talking about uh, this. Uh, I know it's going to be a super long episode here, but thank you, Simon, for for you know again for sitting down with me and, and talking about this. Uh, we've got some great stuff coming up here in the near future. You know, make sure you. You keep tuned to your podcast station, however you get podcasts, uh, for the stuff that we've got coming out here soon. Please uh, take a look at patreon.com, do a search for Patreon, Double Loop Podcast, and find us there. Uh, Because, uh, you know, support from you listeners is really going to help us improve uh, uh, the podcast and uh, you know we're we're looking to uh, expand and uh, you know, reach a broader audience and um, you know just sound better in your ear holes every week. Uh, yep, big big plans to uh, to broaden and improve. Again, check out our our new sponsor, our new partner, California Wine Club, by going to cawineclub.com. When you check out, enter in double loop into the promo code to get a 15% discount. If you have any questions for us, you want to look at what we're teaching here soon, uh, you can send us emails, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Remember that our opinions are our own. Uh, We don't represent uh, in this podcast any other group or agency. Uh, You can also head over to rayforensics.com Click on the Devil Loop podcast uh, button to uh, see the kind of new and improved Devil Loop podcast website. Uh, uh, we've got uh, I've got a bunch of new stuff up there. I'm starting to update, keep things you know up to date, put more and more links into uh, the, um, the, the you know, each of the podcast episodes. Uh, some of them even have videos now. So uh, head over there to find out, you know, just kind of see what we've done uh, with that and how. 
how that's been in, in, being improved. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Double Loop Pod. Uh, so with that, I'll see you guys or talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. <laughs>